A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, welcome to The Chemical Show. This is Victoria Meyer. If you've been listening for a while, you know that I like to talk about the importance of the customer experience and the customer journey as it relates to chemicals and B2B customers and just how it really drives value and loyalty. So this week, I am super excited to bring you this guest. And in fact, I'm gonna, if you're watching this on video, you're gonna get a flash of what we're talking about. John Pico is the founder of Watermark Consulting and author of the best-selling From Impressed to Obsessed. 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. John is an expert in customer experience and in helping customers and organizations impress their customers, build loyalty, have a powerful following, and really create value. So I am excited to have John here and talking about this. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Victoria. Good to be here with you. Thank you. So I like to go back to the beginning. What is your origin story? How did you get started in business? What got you onto this journey of customer experience? So my first exposure to the business world was selling radio ads door to door, if you can believe that. It was back in college and the radio station at my college did not receive any university funding. It was self-supported with ad revenue. And so I went in one day, it was sophomore year. I wanted to be a radio DJ. And I went, I said, hey, you know, can I have a show? And they were like, well, sure. But if you want anything other than the graveyard shift, you need to bring money in for the station. And so that put me on the path to start selling radio ads. And it turned out I was actually pretty good at it. I became sales director of the station. I got a prime slot for my radio show, I'll have you know. And it was really back then that I got my first sense of customer experience. You know, it wasn't even really a term back then. But what I began to see was how all of the different interaction points that you have with a sales prospect or a customer, even ones that might seem very subtle and insignificant, have the potential to exert a very material influence on people's likelihood to consider doing business with you, to then do business, to repurchase, to refer you to others. And so that was really where I got my first taste of customer experience. And after college, I got my MBA, went into the business world, worked as an executive at Fortune 100 financial services firms for about 15 years. And I had the fortune of actually rotating through a lot of different positions, functional areas, heading up sales, marketing, ops, service, distribution, even IT at one point. I found that that was a really unique background. And where many companies go wrong is they don't realize those functional silos are kind of working at cross purposes and really aren't coalescing around sort of a common vision for the customer experience. And so when I had walked in the shoes of all those different functional leaders, I had always thought about starting my own consultancy. And then I just kind of realized, gee, you know, that's kind of a unique point of view to have. And that's what led me to eventually put out my own shingle, because I thought that customer experience consultancy that's headed by somebody who's actually walked in the shoes 
of the head of sales and service and marketing and, and IT, that that would really bring an interesting perspective to some of the challenges that, that companies were facing in that arena. I formed Watermark back in 2009 and haven't looked back since. So that's the origin story. Awesome. That's really pretty cool. So let's just talk about customer experience. What's the difference between customer experience and customer service? It's a very important distinction to make. And I think that one of the areas where companies go wrong is they think those terms are synonymous. And I would argue that nothing could be further from the truth. And the way I would characterize it is like this. Customer service is but one component of the end-to-end customer experience. Customer service doesn't encompass a whole host of interaction points, things that happen pre-sale, even during the marketing stage of getting people interested in your products or services. Customer service doesn't encompass point of sale. It doesn't encompass in the B2B world, for example, doesn't encompass sales proposals and contracting and all of that paperwork, you know, because that's all before anybody's even a customer. And so customer service is this one small component And the reason that it's important to think of customer experience more broadly is that in many industries, you could actually argue that if you have a significant need for customer service, it might actually indicate that you have a problem with your customer experience. Because in many industries, you know, like think of it this way, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to call my utility or I can't wait to call my cable company, or I can't wait to call my insurer, or maybe I can't wait to call my chemical supplier. So when there's that need to reach out to that provider, in many industries, it suggests something has gone wrong upstream. Maybe the product that you gave me isn't operating as promised. Maybe it was difficult to configure. The instructions you gave me to assemble it or to configure it weren't good. Maybe something that was promised at point of sale wasn't delivered afterwards. But my point is that if you are doing things right upstream, you actually have the potential to preempt customer service that's required downstream. You preempt dumb, avoidable inquiries that should never be asked because you're really answering them upfront. And so that's another example of why it's really important to see this distinction between customer service and customer experience. And if you think customer experience is just service, That's really looking at it too parochially, and you could miss really important opportunities to enhance the impression that you're leaving on your customers. That makes sense. And in fact, I see that, and I think many companies and most chemical companies recognize that, right? But they don't necessarily articulate it in that same way, right? So I think in many instances, my experience is that companies are really new to thinking about customer experience as being the end-to-end relationship of what they're doing. You know, sometimes still think customer experience is the responsibility of customer service and sales, as opposed to the customer experience being the responsibility of everyone across that company. Right. Actually, you're being generous. I find there are a lot of companies where even the salespeople are like, oh, customer service, you know, that's something that happens downstream. That's not me. That's those are the people on the 800 line or manning the chat line. And you're right. You know, people in sales, the, the customer experience begins before somebody's even a customer. So it certainly falls on the shoulders of people in sales. But the other thing is customer experience is a concept that's really relevant even to those people in the organization who never have direct contact with your customers. Because if you think about it, the people who are interacting directly with your customers, they're really relying on a whole host of resources behind the scenes in your company, whether it's the IT folks, whether it's the finance folks, the contracting, the legal folks. So there are a whole bunch of players behind the scenes 
that while they never have any direct interaction with the customer, they need to understand that their job has to be to deliver a great customer experience to their internal customer. Because if you're not doing that, then there's no hope that the other individual in your company, your colleague, is going to be able to deliver that consistently great external customer experience. So that's another place where I would say many companies go wrong is they think, oh, customer experience. All right. So maybe sales, maybe service. They never think that the legal or contracting department should be educated about customer experience. But you know what? That's actually pretty important, considering that in a lot of highly regulated businesses, the legal and compliance folks sometimes don't have a full appreciation of how the things that they do impact the end customer. So you're right. It has to be woven through the entire organization. You're obviously really passionate on this topic. What drove you to write this book, From Impressed to Obsessed? You know, you've got a lot to say, but I mean, how did the book come about? I had had the book rattling around in my head for seriously like a decade because I just was interested in sharing with a broader audience everything that I had learned over the years working with companies that excel at this. But I have to say that the real impetus for me to get the book out was because Something that has long upset me is I think that businesses subject their customers to all kinds of indignities and business leaders subject their employees in many cases to all kinds of indignities. And if anything, this has just been exacerbated by the pandemic. And by indignities, I mean things like you have to wait on hold for, gee, in the airline industry, we hear about eight hour holds that people are waiting to speak to a customer service agent, right? You think about sort of the hidden fees and charges that are involved with a lot of companies, the gotcha clauses in the contracts, the inability to find somebody competent who's willing to help you. And then within the workplace, if you think about the indignities that are exacted on employees, which of course is now translating into the great resignation, you have bosses who just don't advocate for their staff that maybe aren't responsive to them, don't really advocate and enable them with the skills and the tools that they need to be their best. So you have all of these, I'd even dare call them incivilities that sort of surround the business world. And what struck me is that there are so many simple, straightforward things that businesses and business leaders could do when they're interacting with the constituencies they serve that can fundamentally improve the quality of the experience that's dealt. And in many cases, it doesn't even cost anything or it costs very little. And so that's something that always bothered me, this notion that there's just so much indignity out there, so much inhumanity. But there doesn't have to be. And the book really is a roadmap for people around these techniques that great companies and great leaders really use to architect a really great, memorable, impressive experience with anyone that you are serving. So you talk about indignities. What is it that you see as maybe the most common problem across companies as it relates to customer experience? Is there a single one that you can point to or is it a whole host of factors? There are so many, but if you wanted me to single one out, I would have to say it relates to one of the 12 principles covered in the book, and that is the idea of making it effortless for your customers. And so here's the indignity. The indignity is that many businesses don't respect their customers' time. And if you think about it, time is people's most valuable finite resource. And as such, when you come across a company that gives you the gift of time and convenience, I would argue that that is something that really spins people's heads around, you know, because they don't see that all the time. 
We live in a world that's rife with friction, where things rarely go as people plan, and it always seems to require more effort and more of my time. I've got to follow up with you because you didn't call me back when you said you would. I have to contact you because whatever you told me your product or service was going to do, it just it's not working the way I expected. And so you look, for example, at a company like Amazon, which I would argue has put the notion of making things effortless really at the center of their entire business strategy. I think one of the reasons that Amazon cultivates such intense loyalty with the customers that they target is they do give people the gift of convenience, the gift of time. And people reward Amazon with their enduring loyalty as a result. And there have been studies that have shown that When you give people the gift of time, when you make it effortless for them, it's a very significant driver in their loyalty to your company. So if I had to pick out one indignity, I'd say that would be it. A lot of people, a lot of companies are wasting our time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, John, as you share that, I'm sitting here reflecting on all the inconveniences and the efforts just today that have been upon me in my various business interactions, including, you know, somebody said, I'm going to call you back in an hour. You know, that hour passed three hours ago and, you know, some paperwork at the doctor when I was with my mother. I'm like, I just gave you all of my information. Why do I have to fill this out again? Right. So I think there's a lot. And we as consumers, we become almost numb to it because we are surrounded by it so often. And that's why when you come across an organization that actually does it, that saves you time, that makes it effortless. You could look at it and say, well, gee, aren't they just doing the table stakes? But so many companies fail to nail those table stakes that when an organization makes it effortless for you, it actually catches your attention and you remember it, You know, which is, again, central to this whole idea of building customer experiences that aren't just nice in the moment, but also forge long-term memories that drive people's repurchase and referral behavior. I'm going to follow this effortless line. And I know this is one of your 12 principles. What can companies do? to make things effortless? I mean, what are some of the ways that they can apply this principle? You know, one thing I recommend from the outset is step into the shoes of your customer. If you can, if you're in a business where you could actually pretend to be a customer anonymously, you know, by going onto a website, filling out some forms that new customers need to fill out, you know, just trying to transact things the way a customer would, that's a very valuable exercise for any business leader because it is so easy to become insulated from what the real experience looks like when you're sitting in your office. Getting out there and actually doing it yourself or observing customers as they go through it, that's very valuable. So with that said, though, you know, a couple examples of things that I think are very helpful techniques in terms of reducing effort. One is look for all the situations where customers have to contact you twice. And depending on the nature of your industry, the time window that you want to look at may vary. You know, in some industries, it might be, well, gee, are they contacting us twice within a week? Or is it maybe twice within six months? But the point is, you actually want to look and see what are those situations where people have to contact us twice? Because that actually might be good hunting ground for us, because that might suggest that we could have done something on the first interaction that would have helped to avoid the second. And I'll give you an example of this in the B2C world that I think all your listeners will appreciate because they've probably experienced it themselves. You know, imagine that you make a change, say, to your cable or internet service. You're on the line with that company and they say, okay, Mr. Pico, yep, you're all set. We've made that change. Great. Hang up the phone. Well, then a few weeks later, I get my first bill after that new change has been made. And I look at the bill and I'm like, I cannot figure this out. There are all kinds of partial charges and whatnot. It doesn't look right. So what do I do? I call them up. That's a repeat contact 
which you could argue could have been avoided if on the first call, the rep had said to me, hey, Mr. Pico, your change is all set. Let me take a moment to walk you through what you're going to see on your next bill, just so you're not surprised. So that's one technique is look for those repeat contacts as a way to figure out how to reduce effort. And then a second idea I'd give your listeners is look for every situation where your staff needs to say the word no to your customer. Because if you think about it, whenever you say no to a customer, you are in essence creating effort in their lives, right? Because they still have a need that needs to be satisfied. Now that you've said no, they either have to shop around for another answer. Maybe they need to find another company or supplier that's going to be able to meet their needs. But the bottom line is, you have saddled them with additional effort in their lives. So another valuable exercise I find is for a period of time, actually just track going out to your staff, you know, say to them, tell me about all the times where you have to say no to a customer this week, and then pick those scenarios apart. There are going to be some situations that you just won't be able to to mitigate. You know, it's just, it's got to be a no, there's no way around it. But there might be some scenarios where you could perhaps make a tweak to a policy or a procedure that might help you to say yes, where before you said no. And if you can start doing that, that will result in you making the customer experience a bit more effortless because you will be saying no less frequently to those customers. So there are a couple of examples. That's a great one. What I think is interesting with some of this, if I think about some of these repeat calls that occur in the chemical industry, and this has been happening for decades, it's, you know, where's my shipment? And the invoice is wrong, or, you know, I had to change my delivery day. And that takes a lot of time. And people have recognized, again, for years that it takes a lot of time. And so this is where a lot of the digitization efforts have taken place. And, you know, quite candidly, the chemical industry has not been the most advanced in digital, right? So there's been a lot of digital progress. But And there's certain things that I can see and people recognize they're easy to bring on. So as they start establishing more portals, customers can come and get that information, do repeat transactions or repeat information or get old invoices, et cetera. But I think there's a fear. I know there's a fear (laughs) that as more things go digital, which creates a certain degree of effortlessness. That's a Mm -hmm. tricky word sometimes. That's a word. Um, And and also a bit more self-service and puts the information in their hands at their time when they want it, that it kind of commoditizes and maybe devalues some of the relationship, devalues some of what they bring personally to that customer, to that business relationship, to that transaction. How do you counteract that? What's your response to that? In most businesses, okay, I would not dissuade a business from creating those digital engagement opportunities because, as you know, that's where the world is moving. That is what consumers have come to expect, even in a B2B interaction. You know, they kind of evaluate what they're getting relative to that great experience they had with Amazon or, you know, with Disney or uh, with Costco a week earlier. But there are ways to make sure that you still maintain kind of the humanity and the emotional connection, even if there is a greater proportion of digital interactions. And I'll give you a few examples. There are ways that you can craft digital communications that are either very nuts and bolts, or you can inject some emotion in them. You know, if you think, for example, about a confirmation email that might be sent out after some sort of online interaction is completed, you could imagine that confirmation email in one world, it could be very dry, it could be very matter of fact, 
But then in another world, it could be framed in a way that inspires confidence, that reminds the customer, hey, you're all set. We've got you covered. And if for any reason anything's not right, this is exactly how you can contact us and we'll get a live person right on the line with you to help you. So even in terms of how you structure digital communications, that I think can have an impact on the degree to which the digital experience won't feel too antiseptic or lifeless, if you will. But then there's another suggestion that I would have, which actually in part is enabled by shifting more interactions to digital. And that is saying to yourself, well, for our live service and sales reps, what should they be focusing their time on if we're offloading some of these things? Because it's not just sort of a fait accompli to say, oh, well, we should just reduce the size of our staff. Because what I would argue is that those people now are positioned to spend more and better time with those customers who really need the help from a live individual. And so those interactions could become richer and more robust as a result. Plus, you might free up those people's time to now engage in some proactive contact. We talked about what the end-to-end customer experience and how it's more than customer service. The customer experience actually includes all of those times when even your customer is not contacting you. You know, many companies don't think about this. They think, well, the customer experience is only when the customer chooses to engage with us, right? No, 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 no. You want to think about all those times where there are silent periods in your relationship with your customer and say to yourself, how can we proactively engage those folks? Because that's another way, even in a highly digital oriented business, where you can inject some humanity and some sort of live interaction. And it's actually really, it's very differentiating because people don't expect that proactive contact. And so it becomes an element of surprise, which as the book describes is one of the memory makers. When we encounter something that we don't often encounter, it sort of, it forges these long-term memories that influence our recollections and our brand perceptions of that organization. So those are some ideas that I would give you in terms of, you know, how do you migrate to more digital experiences without sort of sapping the life out of the entire relationship? You know, the other thing that certainly we've all encountered, both from a B2B perspective in our personal lives as consumers, in fact, I feel like it's a new word that's entered every person around the globe's vocabulary is supply chain disruption, right? So (laughs) at the end of the day, When a product doesn't show up, when the supply chain is disrupted, when you can't fulfill customers' need, it can be problematic. And yet, I think there's probably some better ways for people to handle it. And and I know that you've probably got some couple of principles. One of them, you know, I think about is finish strong, but then you also talk at some point about compressing the pain. How do you see kind of the handling? How do you recommend people approach the handling of these supply chain disruptions in a way that still supports their customer experience? There are actually two principles that come to mind. The two you mentioned, I think, are relevant too, but there are two I'd actually start with around supply chain issues. One of the principles talks about giving your customers the perception of control. And this refers to just kind of a basic cognitive bias that we have where we like to have our hands on the steering wheel just as human beings. And when things feel like they're out of our control, we get very uncomfortable with the whole experience as a result. And with supply chain issues, that really is a situation that is ripe for making people feel like things are totally out of my control. Because if there's ambiguity and uncertainty around when I am going to get the thing that I am looking for, you know, it's on back order and whatnot, 
that's like it's akin to waiting in a line where nobody has told you how long the line is going to be. And you, you as a consumer have probably experienced this yourself. If a known weight always feels better than an unknown weight. And that gets to this notion of the perception of control. Because if you step into a line and somebody tells you, hey, the approximate weight from where you're standing is five minutes, that actually gives you the sense that you've got some control over what's going on around you. And so even though the weight's not getting any shorter, you actually feel better about the interaction. Well, I would say the same is true with supply chain in that if there is, if you do not communicate with your customers, if you fail to set expectations and keep people informed, if they ever are left in the dark, that's going to be a problem. You know, shoot yourself in the foot because you're making the situation worse than it needs to be. So that's the first suggestion I have for you is, is you want to be very communicative during those situations. Make sure you set expectations. And even if those expectations change, you're keeping your customer well-informed. The second principle that I think relates to the supply chain issue is the notion of being an advocate for your customer. And this is, again, one of those things that just kind of like turns people's heads around because it's so rare that they see companies advocating for the customer's best interest as opposed for, to the company's. And so how do you advocate for people in a supply chain disruption? There are two examples I'd give you. One is be very thoughtful about whether there are substitute products or other alternatives that your company offers that might be able to meet the need for that customer. Okay, so all because I ask you for raw material X and it's back ordered doesn't mean the conversation has to end there. It may be there's something else. If I learn more about what you're trying to do with raw material X, maybe there's something else there in my inventory that will help you. That's an example of me really advocating for your interests, trying to figure out you know, what's important to you. I'm not just answering the question that you asked. I'm digging a little bit deeper. So that's one way to advocate. The other way to advocate, which is going to be a little scary when I say it, but there might be certain situations where it's actually advisable to hook your customer up with a competitor. Because if you do not have, and there's no substitutes, there's nothing that you can do to help them, okay? I would argue that it's actually better to say to them, you know what? I heard that so-and-so, that Acme chemical over there, I think they might have some of this and perhaps you should try them. You know, maybe I even give you their number. And, you know, some of your listeners might be like, he's off his rocker. But what I would argue is, that interaction is going to say something to your customer. It's going to say, you know what? They're not just in it for themselves. I mean, that was very kind of them to actually point me to a competitor. And even though they've pointed me there, I'm going to come back to John's Chemical Company in the future because I know that they're looking out for me. They're looking out for my best interests. Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, Zappos, obviously, you know, renowned for the customer experience they provide. He was very clear with his staff. He instructed them, if there is a product that people are looking for and Zappos doesn't have it, help them find it at another retailer. Because he understood that that's going to build goodwill with the customer and they're going to come back for more. Maybe not on that particular sale. You lose that sale, but you'll win in the long run. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly power to the network and the chemical industry itself is very networked, but leveraging those network relationships for the benefit of your customers can secure them to you for a longer term, right? I think that's your example there. You know, one of the things, and I know that you work with a wide variety of companies helping them in customer experience. And I think a lot of times when people think about really owning it and transforming it to becoming what they vision for their future, the vision that they have for their customers, it can be daunting. So it can touch on many, many parts of the companies we've already discussed. 
it can be costly. And I have heard people say, well, you know, but who's going to pay for this? And if it's a customer that I already have, is there net new business there? How do you make the business case for customer experience transformation? Yeah. So let me give you two answers. One at kind of a macro level, macroeconomic, and one at a microeconomic level. So at a macro level, one of the things that's in the book is a study that my firm has been doing for about a decade now, and it's called the uh, Watermark Consulting Customer Experience ROI Study. And it was kind of the piece of research that really put me and my firm on the map originally when I first started Watermark, because basically it was the first study that showed a connection between the quality of customer experience that a company provides and shareholder returns. And so if you look at the study, the centerpiece graphic is really striking. You know, the one in the book is that has 13 years of data. And if you look at the shareholder return of companies that excel in customer experience, the ones that earn raves from their customers, they outperform those companies that inspire rage by an over three to one ratio over a 13 year period. And, and interestingly, the leaders outperform the S&P 500 index, whereas the customer experience laggards underperform the index. So it's not just that there's actually a carrot, that there's a benefit to be gained financially from delivering a great experience. There's actually a penalty exacted if you fail to deliver that kind of experience. You know, what company says, yeah, we aim to lag the S&P 500? That's nobody's vernacular in the business world. And so when companies talk about, gee, what is this going to cost? One thing I encourage them to think about is, well, you know, maybe the question isn't, what is this going to cost to improve our customer experience? Maybe the question is, what is it going to cost us if we don't? Because if you look at that macroeconomic data, it suggests that companies that don't focus on this and deliver a poor customer experience they are not in for a good ride over the long term. You know, over the short term, they might be doing well, but eventually somebody figures out a better way to skin the cat, deliver a better experience to the customer, and they eat your lunch as a result. You know, just ask Blockbuster, just ask the entire taxi industry, you know, two groups that were disrupted by Netflix and by Uber, of course. At a macroeconomic level, that would be my answer to you. At a microeconomic level, what I would tell you is, I think that the thesis that a great customer experience costs more is fundamentally flawed. I don't agree with that thesis. There are certain types of customer experience improvements where, yes, granted, it requires some investment, might increase your cost structure overall. But there are a myriad of customer experience improvements that I would argue can actually lower your costs. And it goes back to what we were talking about relative to the effortless experience. Because think about it, if you are preempting a lot of avoidable, unnecessary interactions that your customers have with you, it's good because you're doing things, making things effortless up front, it's going to put less stress on your operating infrastructure. And when you've got less stress on your operating infrastructure, that's going to allow you to deliver a better, more effortless experience at a lower cost. The challenge for companies is to understand that that economic calculus cuts across cost centers. So for example, you mentioned invoices in the chemical industry, right? And everybody sort of, you know, rips their hair out about invoices and it triggers a lot of calls and whatnot. Well, imagine if a company decided to invest in significantly improving the appearance, the visual appeal, as well as the content and accuracy of their invoices. Now, executives might look at that and say, well, you know, that's a net increase to our costs. I mean, we've got to like redesign the systems. We've got to invest in designing the new invoices. I mean, it's just going to cost more. That's not worth it. What are we going to get out of it? 
But what you have to understand is that the benefits of that experience improvement are not going to manifest themselves in the cost center where those investments are being made. They're going to manifest themselves in some other cost center, maybe in another entirely different geography. It might be in a call center, for example, where they're going to see fewer calls coming in because people are going to not going to have as many questions about their invoices or there aren't going to be as many inaccuracies. And so at a microeconomic level, I think that companies really need to look at customer experience ROI through a holistic lens. You can't just focus on a single cost center. You need to look at the ripple effect of the changes that you make across the organization. And when you do that, I would argue that in many cases, you will actually see that they can often be self-funding improvements. And I think that's probably right. I think you make a good point with that. And my other perspective on this is I actually think customer experience differentiation across companies creates value, right? So having a more distinct, a more streamlined, a more customer-focused customer experience um, can set companies apart. And actually, you can realize greater value, whether it be in loyalty or in dollars, et cetera. And you know, so on the preempting customer context, that's kind of addressing the expense driver to the ROI. But what you're referring to is another significant driver, which is sort of a revenue driver, which can be tougher to quantify, not impossible, but tougher. But you're right, because if you're delivering that great experience, then the people, your clients, they're going to say things like, gee, you know what? It's always so easy to work with John's chemical company. So you know, even though I know Acme has this product too, and you know what? It's even a few pennies more. I'm going to go to John because, I mean, he's just so easy to work with. Or I'm going to go to John because he came through with me when I had that supply chain issue, and he actually hooked me up with another firm that was able to help me out. So yeah, in that sense, that's the other driver of ROI is you're going to get referrals from your existing customers. Your existing customers are going to continue to purchase from you. And you know, research has shown that your existing customers will likely even become less price sensitive because they're going to be focused not on the cost of a single transaction with you. Rather, they'll be focused on the value of the entire relationship that they have with you. And that's just another driver for the ROI behind a better experience. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, that actually fits with the poll that I conducted recently on LinkedIn, which is why do your customers buy from you today from a B2B perspective? And relationship was the number one reason they said. Now, I think there's a lot of layers to unpeel with behind that, but I do think there's a whole connection between customer experience and relationship that's not always explicitly understood and identified, but it kind of falls into the same bucket in many ways. Yeah. And, you know, that relationship word is so like fuzzy, right? You know, when people say, oh, oh, the relationship is the most important thing to me. It's like, well, how is that actionable? Because, you know, how do you actually forge that kind of relationship? It's like people talking about the importance of culture in an organization. Well, it's very nebulous. How does that culture get formed? I'll just go back to the principles in the book, infusing it with emotion, infusing it with advocacy. You know, these are the building blocks of great relationships. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I love about the 12 principles in the book is that it kind of breaks that the mystery, if you will, behind great relationships. Well, how do you get there? And you get there by delivering these experience design techniques. I'll give a plug, an unsolicited plug. Um, John, I do think your book is great. In fact, it was the first book I read in 2022. You know, I've always got kind of a, a stack of books. And I said, I'm tackling this one first because I'm very interested in the topic. And it was really fruitful and really great to read it and just appreciate your principles on it. That's great to hear. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, John, this has been really great talking with you today. How can people find out more about your work? Probably the easiest way is to go to my website, which is johnpico.com. That's J-O-N-P-I-C-O-U-L-T.com. From there, you can jump to my company's website. You can jump to the book's official website. And then you have my personal website for my speaking services, keynote services and whatnot. So yeah, that would be the place to go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you joining us on The Chemical Show today. Thanks. It was fun to be here with you. All right. And thank you everyone for listening. Keep listening, keep sharing, keep following, and we will see you next time. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.